What's up, guys? This is Rafael Garcia back for another edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I'm here with Shawan Humes, and this is episode 106 on December 13th, 2018. Shawan, how you doing there, sir? Not bad at all. I just, uh, my kids just got their first car, so luckily I don't have any hair, otherwise I'd be pulling it out. <laughs> so. Wait, 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 you said your first car? Yeah, the the girls, uh, their mom got them a car. There's three of them, but they're going to be sharing it. But they got it uh, two days ago. How old are they now? Uh, two of them are 16. The other one turned 16 this week. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't realize they were all like, getting that old, man. We're getting old, bro. Who are you telling, man? It just Every time I go to these basketball games or these high schools, it's just a reminder. I'm like, oh, my God. Remember you when you were like four, and now you're 16. So that means I... I've gotten older too. I keep trying to lie to myself, but I, I I can't stop aging if they keep on aging. That's not how that works. Yeah, unfortunately. So don't ever have kids. Because as long as you don't have kids, you can lie about whatever. You can fool yourself. But as soon as you have kids, the math stops adding up. <laughs> you start officially getting older. Hmm. Man, that's, that's pretty crazy. I didn't realize that they were that old, but... um. Man, we got a lot to talk about today, sir. There's been a lot of action in the world of MMA, but before we do that, let them know where to find us and, and how to subscribe to our content. Uh, you can find us on FM Player, YouTube, and SoundCloud, as well as iTunes. So let's keep it moving then, sir. Yeah, so let's go. With that in mind, man, let's start at the top with some news. Um, let's start with Tyron Woodley and Dana White first. Actually, I mean... It's kind of probably probably quite a bit we could talk about with Dana, but we got Tyron Woolley versus Dana White, part one million, where Dana White was talking during one of the recent press scrums, and he basically tried to lay it out there that Tyron Woolley is difficult to work with and that he's not willing to fight any of the contenders that are lined up, Colby Covington or Kamaru Ursman. Now, this is the same Tyron Woolley that fought, what, four times in 12 months, and he just fought three months ago. So why are we back to this point once again? Like I am, I'm, I'm usually going to side with side with the athlete in these situations, and I side with Tyron again. You know, he's asking for more time to make sure his hand is um, fully healed, and it's kind of this leads into the next story we're going to cover too. But if he's just asking for a little bit more time to heal his hand, and he pointed out the examples of Rose Namajunas and Robbie Lawler, two people that Dana White has said they can take their time coming back from injuries. What's different for Tyron Woodley, man? Why is it that he keeps having this fallout with Uncle Dana? I really think Dana just has takes issue with the fact that Tyron doesn't kind of fall in line. I know it's not popular to do, but a lot of fighters take short notice fights, take fights when they're not healthy, and they kind of they're company men. They they do whatever best in the best interest of the company and Tyron's not the guy who does that. I believe he is difficult to work with, not in a negative sense, but in the the instance that he feels he knows his worth, he wants to maximize his money and he knows the UFC is not on his side. So he's not taking any chances with any title defenses because he knows if Robbie Lawler loses his title, they'll still push Robbie Lawler. Rose Amunis loses her title. They'll still push her. Conor McGregor loses his title. They'll still push him. But if Tyron Woodley knows the only leverage he has is that belt, so he's not taking any chances. He's not coming in dinged up. He's not coming in 75%. He's coming in as close to 100% as all times because he knows the minute he loses that belt, 
the MMA media, the MMA fans, and Dana White are going to push him to the side. So he's not willing to give up any leverage or give up give up anything on behalf of the company. So that makes him difficult to deal with, but it also makes him a smart businessman. And while I'm not always on Tyron's side, he's doing what I always say, stop doing billionaires favors. And taking a short notice fight or taking a fight where you're injured is doing them a favor. Now it's going to hurt him in the eyes of the fans, but long-term, this is probably what's best for him and his long-term health and opportunities that may pop up outside of fighting. And what's interesting here is is there's so many different facets of this conversation I love to talk about because we all know what Willie has said in reference to being a champion in the UFC and how he's treated. But this just continues to be more and more fodder for the conversation because we see how Dana talks about or talks speaks of Tyron Willie, how he spoke of Demetrius Johnson the minute they started pushing back and not doing what he wanted them to do. Their whole narrative just immediately, or Dana's narrative and Dana's tone towards them automatically flipped towards something different. It was never fully pleasant, but it just became that much more nasty, in my opinion. Like he, and what's really unfortunate about this is that the fans listen to this narrative and they automatically accept it. They ignore the fact that yes, Willie fought four times in uh, twelve months. They ignore the fact that he fought every number one contender that, that they threw his way at the time. Damian Maya, Steven Thompson twice, uh, Darren Till. They ignore the fact that Darren Till got a title shot off of missing weight, which he should not have. They ignore the fact that Tyron Woodley had a, a surgery on his torn labrum after uh, the Damian Maya fight. They ignore the fact that he had surgery on his hand after the Darren Till fight. Why are we living in a world of such cognitive dissonance where fans are completely willing to ignore something like this and just accept Dana's narrative? I don't think it's that they ex- just accept Dana's narrative. It's like somebody, we, we have this discussion a lot with Demetrius Johnson. Somebody used to argue with me on um, Twitter and just in general, people were like, people don't respect Demetrius, blah, 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 blah. People don't respect Tyron. It's not that people don't respect him. It's not that people don't understand what he's saying. People just don't like him. They don't like him. They don't like how he fights. They don't like how he analyzes fights. They don't like his attitude. They don't like how he he makes fighting into more of a business. They want guys who put on the front of, this is war. This is my passion. I would do this for free. Donald Cerrone. Guys who will go in fighting injured. Conor McGregor. People who, are, who, who play up the more romantic aspects of mixed martial arts. Tyron Woodley, as much as he's a competitor, has repeatedly said this is a business and he's going to treat it as such. Demetrius Johnson, as much as he talks about being a competitor, says this is a business and he's going to treat it as such. As a result, people can't really buy into them. And I'm not going to deny there's not a racial aspect to it because I really believe there is one. But at the same instance, I cannot ignore the fact that these guys openly make it about business and don't want to pander to fans and they don't want to kind of play the role. So if you don't want to play the role, that's fine. I respect that. But there's a price to there's a price to pay for not playing the role. People make fun of Conor McGregor because he plays the game. That's what gets him paid. Chell Sonnen plays the game. That's what gets him paid. If you don't want to play the game, you don't have to. But you you don't get to complain about not getting certain opportunities because you refuse to play the game. But I, I think people respect Tyron. I think people understand what he's saying. They just don't like the dude. I like him. I think he's a good guy. But if I'm talking about a, a fighter from pure interest, like his fights are exciting. He gives he gives interesting and entertaining interviews. 
nah, dude, he, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. And that's why Dana can talk the way he talks to him. It's like, it's kind of like if somebody was talking to, they're picking on somebody else who they know can't fight, but they wouldn't talk to you the same way because they know you can. Dana won't go with Donald Cerrone, even Jose Aldo or, or Conor McGregor because they have fan bases because they make money. He can only say so much. He can only get so far out of pocket. The majority of people don't like, don't like Tyron and the people who do aren't a big enough group for it to make a difference. To be honest, if I was Tyron, the best thing he should do is embrace being a heel and go full Tito versus, versus Dana and try to make the most money he can off of being hated by Dana and continuing to win. That's the best option he has at this point. Because if he's trying to get fans to understand and appreciate what he does, that's not going to happen. So let me ask you this. All those different narratives and different situations aside, if you were Tyron Willie's management and working with him in a personal nature, who would you have him fight next? Kobe Covington or Kamara Usman? If it's me me and I'm his... um, management and in his corner i'm pushing for the for the covington fight first yeah um, it has to i mean if he really had an option like if he really could get whoever he wanted of course i'd go with like a nick diaz or a gsp obviously he can't get those guys so the best guy as far as drawing attention a guy who will draw eyes maybe put butts in seats or at least have some a chance for him to break out of that that little that that small 250 200 range of pay-per-views covington's got to be the guy he's got a fan base to a degree he draws eyes. He talks. He says crazy things. He knows how to play the game. That way, Tyron can still stay true to who he is and, and not have to say anything and not get into a back and forth, and he can let Colby Covington do the heavy lifting, similar in the way that Floyd Mayweather let Conor McGregor do the heavy lifting for the promotion of their fight because Tyron, as good as he is, he can't sell on his own. Fighting Usman, Usman's great. He's dynamic. He looks scary. He doesn't fight scary, though, and he doesn't fight in a manner that draws attention. Covington doesn't either. But at least Covington has a stick and an angle he's created that makes him look like he's bankable, that mi- makes people take interest. So Covington's the best guy to go with at this point. I, I don't know. He's probably the easier matchup, to be honest. But, yeah, Covington's a guy I would suggest him, suggest he fights. There's nobody else in the welterweight class who can draw anything. I mean, he really doesn't have any options as far as actually making points and making money and having a chance to become a star. He's got to fight guys who can create interest. And Colby Covington is the only guy in the division who can create interest at this stage. So in your opinion, interest aside, which one of those two guys is a quote-unquote easier fight for Tyron? I'd probably say Covington's a little bit easier because I don't know that he's defensively very sound. And given that he likes to force the pace, but I don't know that he can force the pace against a guy who's as athletic as Woodley without paying a heavy price and, and Woodley landing a sharp counter or even a Woodley exploding for a takedown. I think he could overwhelm Covington. Um, Usman presents interesting challenges because Usman is a comparable, if not better athlete than, than um, Woodley. And even though his striking, he doesn't really put his strikes together well, he throws, he kind of pot shots, which makes it a little bit harder to counter him and a little bit harder to time him. So it'd be harder for Woodley because Woodley's used to guys either pressuring or chasing him, and Usman kind of pot shots. It's a little bit harder to find his rhythm to land those counters. It'd be like fighting a bigger, maybe more athletic version of himself, and while Woodley would have the advantage in seasoning and poise and championship experience, Usman, I'd have to say, would probably be the bigger, stronger, and more explosive guy. I don't think he hits as hard, 
But I think overall, as far as like getting the takedowns, barging into clinches, escaping out of bad positions, Usman's probably got it over Woodley. And I think Usman probably has a better gas tank. So Usman's probably the most more dangerous fight between the two. Okay. Okay. Some interesting thoughts there. So I want to move it on and let's talk about what one of the fallouts was of this fight falling uh, or Tyron Woodley not being quote unquote ready to fight. UFC 233 has been canceled. Well, according to, if you ask the UFC, it's been postponed, but UFC 234 is still 234. It's not now 233. So they're making it seem like the fight was postponed when in actuality it's canceled because they're not going to do 233 after 234 and et cetera, et cetera. So looking at the situation here where the UFC had to cancel the show, they still have 12 shows, 12 pay-per-views planned for 2019. What does this tell you? Does this fit the narrative that there's too many events and too much still going on? Or is this just a matter of having so many fight cards with multiple title defenses and other situations going on is um, just hindered this one event. Is this a flash in the pan? I think this is the fourth event that they've canceled in 12 years. Is this a flash in the pan or is this a sign towards bigger uh, problems? I, I probably think it's a sign towards bigger problems, to be honest. Like, losing Woodley, I don't know why that changes anything because as much of a championship fight as he offers, he doesn't sell. He just never has. If he's not on a card with a bigger name, he just does not sell. That's been proven time and time again. So him not being at the, at the, on the card isn't really going to change anything. What's that, like 25,000 buys maybe? He, it, it doesn't really change anything in my opinion. The whole problem is they, they A, they run too many events, and B, they have too many fighters. So it's like you can't build up the proper amount of hype because every event's the biggest event. Every fight's going to be a war and it's going to be better than we expected. And those fights very rarely live up to the propaganda and advertisement that we're sold on. So the, the UFC, I, th I think needs to scale back and do more, do less cards and just have them more stacked, give guys chances to recover, give guys chances to, to um, get healthy and give, and also to have basically have guys training almost year round so they can be standing instead of getting a guy who hasn't trained in, you know, and got two weeks to drop weight and then we get a crappy fight anyways because the guy's underperforming. I think I think they just need to start looking at the bigger picture, scaling back their events and make it a point for every fight they have on the card, they have somebody else who is going to be listed as a backup or could be moved up in the fight in the fight card order so that they're not losing they're not losing fights and as a result losing interest because it's always the big fights that are the fights they're banking on to kind of solidify a card or to bring in fans. And they can't make those up because nobody knows who's going to be fighting next or what's going to be happening next. It's for such a successful company. They're surprisingly disorganized in their structure and how they address these issues. In my opinion. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. I do believe that they need to scale back on some of these shows. Um, but I don't see it happening. I don't see them taking the onus of doing so. So they're moving over to ESPN Plus and they're already booking um they're already booking various shows there. People are people are upset. Fans are no longer watching all of the uh, shows that they put forth. They're struggling to get together full cards. They're having more and more 
pushback from fighters at the top of the uh, ladder because they see that the UFC is getting more and more and they're getting less and less. So it's just, it's it's definitely snowballing to a point right now. So I, I think that this is indicative of a larger problem, but at the same time, I don't think the UFC is going to be willing to change. I just don't think that they're willing to change the way that they are booking these events, the number of fights that are on these cards, how late they're starting, how long these cards are going. They're stuck in their ways, and I feel like it's almost indicative of leadership, of um, not wanting to be told what to do with their promotion. It's actually very funny because it's very similar to how Vince McMahon has run the World Wrestling uh, Entertainment, where he's been where he's been front and center uh he's 72 years old he Vincent man is still front and center and it's usually what he wants and nothing else and even though ratings are down across the show even though network purchases are down there's controversy around the um saudi arabia deal even though all those different matters are coming to a head time and time again he's not changing what he's doing because he believes he's right i feel like the same thing occurs within the ufc with leadership and dana white being the the president and like the masthead of everything he believes what he's done is right and he's with he's going to stick to his guns well i don't know why he would change i mean it's a thing that gets him paid makes the ufc bigger while summarily keeping the fighters in a position a disadvantageous position it'd be like if you date a girl who you know you don't acknowledge as your girlfriend, you're not nice to her. You never make time for her, but she pays your bills, uh, lets you drive her car, and cooks for you. And it's like, as a decent person, you wouldn't tolerate that because you know you don't feel the same. But if you only care about yourself, why would you give that girl up? Yeah, you don't like her, but you put in no effort and you get 100%. So in actuality, there's no real reason, motivation for the UFC to change what they're doing because they're winning from all this. And as much as the fighters complain, Every fighter keeps saying, I don't want to work a regular job. I just can't do a nine to five or I'm meant for something bigger. So even if these fighters go on strike or something, there'd be other fighters to take their spot. Because once again, as we've said, mixed martial arts and combat sports are an individual situation. So the UFC has got all the advantages. They don't have to tolerate anything. They don't have to work anything out because these guys will cut each other's throats to get an opportunity to make that 15 and 15 or 25 and 25 or to fight on that prelim. We've seen it before. These guys are all, you know, we need to take care of each other as fighters until it inconveniences their bottom line or their opportunity. Saw it with Joanna and, and Nunes. We saw it with uh, Valentina and Nico. So all he has to do is throw out a bone, watch these guys kill each other for it, and then whoever survives, you know, they take the bone, they're glad they won, and the UFC goes about racking up the money. It, I mean, they'd have to be people of great conscience for them to be better. So let's talk about um, probably one of the more intriguing pieces of news from this week and what occurred over there at Bloody Elbow. So I don't want to focus so much on Ian Kidd. So, so for those who do not know, Ian Kidd is or was an individual who was a freelance writer for Bloody Elbow. He um, was specific, he did some freelance writing there. He ran a podcast with Stephanie Haynes. And he was a pro- pretty much a prominent Twitter personality in the MMA space. On Friday, I believe it was, uh, news came out that he uh, was charged with being in possession and producing 
child porn. He had somewhere in excess of nearly 500 videos. I want to say almost more than a thousand still pictures and I want to say about 800 moving images. Um, and being in Scotland, he went through the court systems there. He was basically put on probation and him and his partner, uh, his business partner had various uh, probationary type of punishments placed on them. But this information wasn't known here and Bloody Elbow did not know. So a Ian got into a confrontation with a Twitter user who started doing some digging on him and found this information out about him and put it out there on the internet. It eventually got back to Bloody Elbow. They did their research and then promptly fired him immediately after. And a couple days later, they began making statements. The writers themselves uh, began making statements about the situation, about their stance, about what happened, about what they knew, etc., etc. But the most interesting piece of this whole thing is the way that the MMA community responded to it. And this immediately, to, to many, became an opportunity for managers, some fighters, and the fans to begin attacking Bloody Elbow. Now, Bloody Elbow is known for doing a lot of investigative work. You have individuals like Kareem um, Zidane, who, did, who does a lot of investigative work in uh, MMA from a, probably, a, I mean, you could say a negative standpoint from white nationalism in mixed martial arts to uh, Kadyrov and his ties to mixed martial arts to to um, controversy and cover-ups within the UFC, et cetera, et cetera. The conversation that he, he does some great research, some great reporting, and some great digging. And a lot of the work that Bloody Elbow has done has rubbed a lot, of, a lot of people the wrong way, and I understand that. But with that in mind, the response from fans media, or not, not media members, excuse me, fans, some managers, and some other fighters is probably pretty much disgusting to watch to me. You have individuals such as um, Milky Kawai and uh, uh, what's his name? Ali Adelaziz using this as a moment to attack some media members for questioning why Greg Hardy is fighting in the UFC, which, which is almost indicative of the sport because it's almost as if because of what Ian Kidd did, that means that media members can't question why a convicted um, domestic abuser is allowed to fight in, in MMA. And fans themselves, led by the biggest troll of them all, Front Row Brian, basically use this as a major, 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 almost alt-right-like campaign against Bloody Elbow and their uh, their their staff members over there. So, Schwann, when you saw this happening, and when you saw this breaking down, what were some of your thoughts? Not necessarily focusing on Ian Kidd, because everyone has agrees he's a reprehensible, re reprehensible human being. And for those who don't know, I actually worked on, at Bloody Elbow 2 for uh, probably about three years as well. I did some freelance work for them, and uh, um, my, my, my relationship with them is, is, has been terminated a couple months back. But what was your thoughts about this from a reaction standpoint and watching how everyone responded to the situation? Well, my first point is like a lot of people got shocked. They're like, don't pick on the bloody elbow people. They didn't know. They didn't know. And you know what? I get it. I get it completely. I don't think they knew. Obvi I mean, 
I don't think they knew. I hope they didn't know because we have a whole. I'm just speaking from what my 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 thought process at that moment was because I didn't know if they didn't know. I'm just going to assume they didn't know. But the thing about it is, it's like being in a gang. If you're in a gang or I'm in a gang, you stand next to me and somebody starts shooting. Anybody standing next to me is going to get hit. And a lot of people, I don't think it was fair how they were attacked, but that's how it works in real life nowadays. If if I was worked at a company and let's say I get busted on sexual harassment charges or some kind of abuse, anybody I'm connected with is going to be asked questions and they're going to want a statement from them. When you have these companies where they're like, you know, it was a bad environment for women and they were being harassed and doing all stuff. Every man who works for that company is it instantly assumed to have known about it and taken a part of it or been a coward for not mentioning it. It's just what people do now. Once somebody in a company or a group gets accused of something, everybody gets accused and everybody gets questioned. How did you not know? You stood up for this person. Everything you've done from that point that you knew the person on gets questioned or doubted and people start looking at you a little bit closer. So I wasn't shocked at all by the response because that's what happens in every single case. Somebody gets busted for drugs, somebody gets busted for abuse, somebody gets just for porn, child porn. Everybody associated with that associated with that person is going to get run through the ringer. That's what happens in every single case. I, it just doesn't matter. It's what's going to happen. The MMA aspect of it, the community, uh, it's kind of doggy dog out here, man. Like people aren't really all that close in the MMA community. I mean, in my experience, they're not super friendly. The fans aren't super friendly. They get hung up on fighters. They get hung up on managers. And if you don't agree with them on a said fighter or said manager, they will threaten you. They will harass you. They will DM you. They will tweet you. They will email you. They'll do all sorts of things. And that's just the people we're dealing with in this sport, which is why a lot of people don't cover it. So this was no shock to me. I've had people threaten me before. I've had people walk up to me in real life and try to confront me over something I've, I've written about a fighter. And all I do is fighter analysis. I don't understand. I have no idea what the other people go through, but I've literally had people try to confront me off of that, like physically want to fight me over this. So it wasn't shocking to me at all. It's not disappointing. It's not shocking. It's not surprising. It's, it's the, it's the people they cater to and it's the way business works nowadays. And I guarantee you, if any site, other site gets in some kind of media issue or something, everybody's going to come for them and everybody attached to the site. The one thing that kind of shocked me is, and, and I say this, just being frank, a lot of the people that people do investigative studies on or research on and all this stuff, I, I applaud people for doing that. I applaud people for taking that stance. But in some cases, some of these people have money and some of these people have connections. And I've always said this, if you're really going to be in that kind of business, you kind of kind of have all your, your, your bases covered because people with money get offended when they get attacked. People get offended when you take a certain tone with them and they're going to do their research. So if some of your things aren't lining up, you're cheating on your husband, you're cheating on your wife, you used to do whatever, deal drugs, prostitute, whatever it is you used to do, that's going to come to light. And as long as you're okay with that coming to light, you can talk freely and you can be honest and be direct. But the simple fact of the matter is when you're going after people in positions of power, they're going to go after you and they're going to look into your life. And that's essentially what happened to Ian Kidd. He was just arguing with somebody and somebody did some research on him. And the first thing I asked myself was like, if you knew that you had done this, how are you so inflammatory? How are you so confrontational with people? Because in the in, in the society we live in now, how many people just get their whole information and lose jobs over stuff they say on Twitter or have their whole lives turned upside down? Do you think because you're covering a sport, you're above that kind of thing? 
I mean, I, I can't even say I'm shocked. I'm, I'm shocked this doesn't happen more often. And I honestly expect this to happen more often in the future. I expect writers and fighters and managers to get their cards pulled and have their lives opened up and exposed for public consumption. If somebody who they're arguing, if you're arguing against one of their clients in a manner or painting their clients or their sponsors in a manner that they don't like, I fully expect this to be more of a regular thing and for more writers to become the subject of stories, not just the fighters or their management. I, I really think this is going to become a thing moving forward. You said quite a bit there. Um, yes, you're correct. It, you can't throw stones in a gas in a glass house. That's always going to be the case. Um, and what's interesting, I don't think it happens that much across media as a whole because investigative media, investigative journalism, excuse me, is a, an important aspect of media. It's the foundation. It's the foundation of journalism. Um, so you see this in sports, and you see this across all basically facets of life. I do not think we're going to see this happening this much in a sport. Man, this guy was, he was found of some heinous, heinous, heinous crimes. And are there other people who cover uh, sports and probably have some dirt in the background? Of course. Um, skeletons in the closet, of course. But I don't think we're going to see anything this massive. Um, and what was most interesting to me about this was the vitriol that came from the MMA community as a whole. As And we've been talking about this. We talked to Mike Russell about this as well. Almost why is it that this community has such a negative response to journalism and strong journalists uncovering things that make this organization or make these make this industry look bad or or make it okay to question why are so many people questioning the media members for talking about Greg Hardy I mean we got a nasty comment on one of our uh, recent episodes talking about Greg, uh, Greg Hardy and it, it, it happens so why is it this community is so upset when individuals do digging and do investigative journalism that shows the underbelly of mixed martial arts i don't know if you think about it it happens in a lot i mean it happens to certain degrees in a lot of sports but you're dealing with just a lot of people who are living through these athletes but if you look at other sports when people live through athletes that's when athletes start getting into stuff and people start getting blackmailed or people start getting beat up or people start getting harassed because they accuse said fighter, said football player, said basketball player of harassment, this or that, or bullying or stealing or illegal, whatever they're doing. It, it's kind of the norm. People live through these athletes. They, they, they're, they're their hero. They're their example of manhood or womanhood or whatever. And when there's money involved, people start taking steps to protect the money that's being involved in these things. I mean, it, it's, it's really if you look if you're a fan of bigger sport traditional sports you you know that people get harassed over this kind of stuff you know people get threatened for pressing charges against a certain kind of person so it's not too much of a shock it's just social media makes it more obvious and more visceral because so many people seem to be losing the message of using something that's really a horrible crime to get an agenda across but that's what i said i think you'll see more of this because it's what happens in politics it's what happens in crimes it happens all the time yeah you want to press charges okay well we're going to put this out or you saw this happen yeah i saw it i'm going to press charges i'm going to speak up for this young lady or this young man 
okay, but what were you doing at that hotel? Uh, well, I was visiting family. No, you're cheating on your wife. Are you still going to speak about it in court? Uh, no, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. That's, that's how things get done. So maybe people are offended because they, they haven't seen it. But this is really how people operate. They wait for you to make a mistake and then they come for you. It, that's, that's essentially what it comes down to. They're waiting for you to f- mess up so they can disavow everything you said and done by saying, look at this person. You were connected with this person. How can you believe this person? Is what they do in politics. Do you want the president who cheats on his wife? Do you want a guy who is part of this culture or they're not born in this family? It's the same kind of logic. And I, I really believe it's going to, it won't happen as big because hopefully nobody else is involved in something like this. But I fully believe stories get pulled and things get, uh, uh, things are left unsaid because somebody has dirt on somebody. I believe that happens in every level of business, every level of sports, every level of sports journalism. I, I believe this. I've heard stories from people who have done sports journalism, who pulled stories because this could put them in a certain position or somebody they're connected to is in a certain position and they don't want, want to make things worse for them. It's, it's really business as usual. You just got to see it played out firsthand on Twitter. Yeah, we definitely got to sit here and watch it play out firsthand. Um, oh, well, it was one really, thing. pretty amazing to watch. Go ahead. It might have been by uh, Malachi. I can't say his name right. Five. I know how to say his name. He's the, he's one, I think he's Greg Hardy's manager. Or somebody connected to him. And he Milky. Was saying, Hello? Milky. It's Milky Kawa. Yeah. Mel, yeah. He said, I, I want to say that I saw a tweet where him or somebody connected to him said he had dirt on a bunch of people from Bloody Elbow. And I don't know if it was an idle threat or if it's like, I know things about what they do in their downtime. I'm just, I got them in the chamber waiting to bust, waiting, waiting for the opportunity to bust, bust around on them. I think it's bullshit. I'm not saying I believe it. I'm just, I would be remiss to think that everybody who is involved in any sports coverage or, or just living a regular life doesn't have something that can be pulled out on them. And when you're confronting people with money or you're messing with people's money, people tend to be willing to say things. I don't think he's telling the truth either, but I can't say that of every media member or every person who's involved in this sport has been doing things that could get them in trouble or could change the public's view on them moving forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, man. It'll be interesting to see, but I think he's full of shit. Um, yeah, he's definitely not a good guy. No, nah, I don't even want to kind of venture down that path. I think he's full of shit. But let's uh, let's continue the conversation because we got something else that to talk about that unfolded recently too as well, where we had UFC 231 with Brian Ortega and Max Holloway doing the damn thing in the main event with uh, um, Holloway getting the win by forcing a doctor stoppage in between the fourth and the fifth round. So talk to me about this fight here, Schwan. What did you see from both men that led to this outcome? Well, first thing I saw is Brian Ortega's corner. Maybe they're just trash, dude. I'm just going to say it. Henry Gracie, he, he, whatever. First of all, that fight should not have gone as long. It shouldn't have gone in between fourth and fifth. They should have thrown the towel in before that. He was taking a beating. He was not doing enough consistent work to really be in the fight. They were basically depending on his power or his ability to snatch a finish to turn the fight around ignoring the fact that he was being beaten from pillar to post for the majority of the fight. Secondly, they made the common mistake that they made a mistake that is so common in mixed martial arts. For some reason, everybody who coaches or corners somebody 
coaches and corners from a position of strength, even if they have no reason to think that they, they have an advantage over a fighter, they, for some reason, t- lie to their fighter and lie to themselves and build strategies based around them being better in a particular range when it's just not true. Ortega came out there trying to bo- box Max Holloway, which is the dumbest approach ever. He is not a seasoned enough or skilled enough or structured co- structured as far as the connectivity of the techniques he uses in his strategy. He, d- he doesn't have that. He can't get engaged in an extended striking battle with Max Holloway and win. Holloway's got too much lateral movement. His timing's too good. On top of the fact he forces a very high pace, he's also defensively sound. You can hit him a lot, but you won't hit him with the shots you need to put him away. And third, his his placement and the variety he has on his shots and his ability to switch stances just is something that you have to be you have to have a certain familiarity and a certain for, certain comfort level with dealing with. Ortega doesn't have that comfort level. What Ortega should have been doing is what he did late in the third round, which is when he was started mixing it up, transitioning between ranges throwing Max off balance and allowing himself to get off on the feet and to get takedowns. But when he did it, it was after he'd already taken two rounds of being beaten half to death. And he was doing out of desperation, which means Max knows, okay, plan A didn't work. Now you're going to plan B. You most likely don't have a plan C. So once I get through plan B, you're finished. If he would have come out and mixed it up earlier, then Max is like, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to keep mixing it up? Is he going to dig his heels in? I don't, I don't know. I have to be on my P's and Q's, but he basically gave away the first two rounds. And then in the third round decide he's going to actually fight with some sort of structure and some sort of intelligence. And by that time it was too late. By that time it was too late. He knew that he already knows you have nothing for me on the feet. And now you're going to this, which means this, and this is your last go around. If this doesn't work, you got nothing and it didn't work. And that was basically, that was essentially the, the end of the fight. They didn't prepare him correctly. For him to come out and try to exclusively strike and box with Max Holloway, he doesn't have the skills for that. He does not have the skills. He has individual techniques he does well. He's got some decent defense, but he doesn't. He hasn't put the time in, the rounds in sparring, or with the high enough level of sparring partner for him to develop the feel, the timing, and the sense for the for the spacing to take advantage of someone as good as Max Holloway. That works well against Frank Yeager because Frank Yeager, as good as he is, is somewhat limited as a striker based on his size, his reach, and his footwork. You can take advantage of him. Same thing with some of the other guys he fought. He wasn't going to be able to do that against Max Holloway. And I specifically said he needs to transition ranges and keep him off balance so his strikes become more effective, his takedowns become more effective, the submissions become more effective. And he didn't do none of that until he was already 0-2 in the hole. And then he did out of desperation. So I, I, I think Ortega, he showed improvement. He showed a great chin. He showed some punching power. He showed some skill. But basically, he eliminated, he eliminated the advantage he had, which was the ability to put all the skills together and threaten Max on every possible range. Instead, he made it a, basically, he made it a striking battle, and he paid the price for it. And if his corner trained him to do that, then they messed up. And if his corner let him take a beating and let that fight go on the way it went in, his corner messed up. They were negligent in how they took care of him, and they were negligent in how they trained him. Until I hear otherwise about their their game plan, I, I can only go off what I saw, and it was terrible. Of course, one of those guys was in Ronda Rousey's corner, so I already know that they're not big on making adjustments and using a full skill set. I know they'll let somebody's ego get to them and fight the wrong fight at the fighter's uh, to the fighter's detriment. So that's no shock to me right there.
it, it was just a bad plan and a bad execution. And Ortega paid the price for it. And I really believe he had some of the elite level talent beaten out of him on that night. This might be a career changer for him moving forward. So let's talk about moving forward then. Max Holloway is being talked about as he's the GOAT of 145, greatest 145-pound fighter of all time. And Dana White even went out and said that he thinks Max Holloway is done at 145. Now, we know that Max has had, like, not weight cut issues, but he's a big guy. And he's still growing. He's still relatively very, very young. I only think he's 25 years old now. Um, so let's talk about that. The first aspect, let's tackle, is Holloway the greatest 145-pound fighter at all time. I'm still prone to lean Jose, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, he's second because he's beaten – he's uh, – the way he's been in the division, I can't say he's first because he hasn't defended his titles enough time. So, I mean, Jose is the best guy. He defended in two different organizations, and he was undefeated for how many years? So I, I have to – just on length, quality of opposition, and the consistency of you're breaking up a little bit. I, I just give it to Jose based off his consistency and the, the time frame he was champion. It's, it's hard to look back. Sorry. It's just hard to look past that. I, I give it to Jose. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with that too. I don't know if you saw uh, Luke Thomas on, um, excuse me, saw Luke Thomas speaking to George St. Pierre yesterday and GSP was saying that he believes it's harder for him it's harder for individuals to remain a champion than it is to become a champion and uh, Holloway you know he has two defenses now two in one year uh, he fought in December 2017 and fought in December uh, obviously this year so let's see what his consistency is like but I'm leaning uh, towards Jose right now but at 155 do you think uh, he would be a force at 155 pounds? Kevin Lee was questioning how high he can make. I think he predicted that Holloway can make it to the top five in the weight class. But do you think that he has a skill set to be as much of a force there as he is at 145? I think he has it. He's like a he's like the bizarro version of Tony Ferguson. Like he's really heavy on the striking and and the clinch work. And he's not so much into the scrambles and the grappling. Not, not like Tony has a heavy emphasis on the wrestling and the grappling, but he can strike. Max has a heavy emphasis on the striking, long range, mid range, close punches and kicks. And he has he can wrestle and he can grapple. With the emphasis is nearly the cavern. You're, you're breaking up some, dude. You break, I need you to fix that. His skill in the his skill level in the grappling and wrestling exchanges isn't nearly as good as the striking. Um, the biggest issue for him at 55 is, as I've said before, a lot of his, his success is based on his durability and his physicality. He's not going to be able to bully guys the way he bullies them at 45. And I don't believe against the better guys, the top 10 guys, I don't think he eats their power shots the way he eats power shots at 45. He spent a career in the UFC. As good as he is defensively, he applies a lot of pressure, so he's taking a lot of big shots. That's going to catch up to him, even at 45. It's definitely going to catch up with him at 55. And I still think, I, I would agree he could probably be a top five guy. But once he gets in that top five, that's where it starts getting very difficult because he's facing big, strong, grappling, heavy, athletic guys who can physically, as far as strength-wise, dominate him. 
But based on his cardio and his footwork and the volume he throws, he can beat a lot of guys at 55. But the same instance, there's a lot of guys at 55 who can beat him just based off size and athleticism alone. People like to downplay how big a factor size plays in things, but it really does. Look at RDA. He was a punisher at 55. He was a bully at 55. He goes to 70. He fights lower-level guys, runs through them. He starts fighting the elite guys. He starts getting walked up, walked down, backed up, and beat up. And I think a similar thing might happen to Max once he gets into that top five, top six level of um, 55 guys. Interesting breakdown there, man. It seems like a lot of people are kind of trying to figure out where he would fit in at 155. I'm, I'm interested in seeing what he would look like in that weight class. I'm always um, intrigued at the idea of guys jumping up and being able to compete there because I – that size matters, especially if you have bigger men cutting down. So I'm definitely interested in that. If he did move up to 155, who are the people you, you would put him against? I would immediately rebook the fight with Conor McGregor, but where do you go with him first? I don't think you give him Conor right away just because Conor's coming off a lot. I mean, like, you could make that fight. I'd say Tony Ferguson, maybe even Khabib. Khabib or Tony Ferguson would be good. Kevin Lee too. But if, if you were trying to make money, of course you go with Conor. But if you're trying to get interesting matchups, he's an interesting matchup with Justin Gaethje. He's an interesting matchup with Kevin Lee. It's an interesting matchup with Tony Ferguson. You know, I, I think those would be the the, fir- the first fights I would start off with. Cool, cool. So while we're talking about future, um, what do you do with Brian Ortega? How do you rebuild him after seeing him get basically dominated in his first professional loss? I don't think you have to rebuild him. I think you need to give him a break. He doesn't need to fight or spar for a while. He needs to really just take some time out, watch the film, and really have an honest discussion about how he ended up in the positions he ended up in. It's not that he's just unskilled. A lot of it was just the approach he used didn't put him in positions to make to take advantage of the skills he has. I think he needs a long break. And the thing they need to remember is, Max Holloway is clearly a cut above everybody in featherweight. That's been proven time and time again. He, he went through half the division before he even got a belt on him. I don't think there's too many guys in the division who can do what Max Holloway did to, to Ortega. I mean, he's already beaten a bunch of top 10 guys already. So who's the guy who can, Max, who can imitate what Max Holloway did? It's, it's almost the same thing with Connor and Khabib. Who can do to Connor what Khabib did? Maybe one other person? Nobody else has that wrestling pedigree and that athleticism. Nobody else has Max's striking pedigree, his layers of striking, nor his durability. Those shots that Brian Ortega landed put out almost every other flyweight, excuse me, featherweight in the division. They just didn't put out Max Holloway. They hurt him, but they didn't put him out. So you take some time off. You start adjusting. You start trying to develop more of an all-round game plan and how to transition between ranges because that's very important for a guy who's still fighting his He's finding his way in mixed martial arts and finding his way in striking. You can't leave yourself on an island and hope that your power or these individual moves you learn are going to turn the fight around. You have to really develop all the connective stances, positions, angles, and and basically your strategic look at how you fight. But really, I don't think I think you just keep on you keep on moving forward with an emphasis on putting everything together. There's not too many guys who can do what Max Holloway did. I can't think of one. So Ortega's in a good position. Holloway moves up. He's the next guy up. And I don't really know who at featherweight right now beats him. 
some good analysis there. So let's move to the co-main event where Valentina uh, Shevchenko dominated her way to the women's flyweight title, basically con- doing exactly what you said she would do to Joanna Yon Jacek and and taking all five rounds of that fight. What what do you think, man? What did you see here? And like, I'm 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 I mean I don't really want to ask you because you you basically been saying this for for months here, but why shouldn't we be surprised with what we saw on Saturday? I think people just, they, a lot of people just don't, when they're watching a fight, a lot of people watch it as fans. They don't understand what they're seeing. And that's why people saw Joanna and they're like, oh, Joanna throws all this volume. Joanna, so this and that. It's not that Joanna is not a skilled fighter, but the fact of the matter is most of her fights have been against people who aren't world-class strikers. And people say, well, what does that have to do with the takedowns and everything else? If I can neutralize you on a certain front, then that instantly makes any anything else I'm trying to do more successful. If I can, if I know I can grapple with you, then I can box you up on the feet because I can neutralize you grappling. That ace in the hole that you have, that advantage you have, goes away because now I can neutralize it. It's the same thing on the feet. Joanna is used to dealing with girls who are average or athletic attribute strikers. She did, she's facing a girl who's got better athleticism, better size a better style for this fight and someone who's already familiar with what she does. All these other girls, the first time they fought Joanna, they had no idea what she does. They seen film, but they, they haven't felt it. This girl's been in the ring with her two, three times already before she knows her timing. She knows her rhythm. She knows her spacing. She knows where she's weak at. And I know people say, well, you can change, but the fact of the matter is most fighters don't change. They refine things. They don't make wholesale changes. So this was a really easy fight for Valentina because of the majority of the things that, she used in the fights before or things that she used now because Joanna hasn't addressed them. She got better at certain things, in and out movement, distance boxing, but her, her, her boxing in the pocket is still terrible. It's always been terrible and it's still terrible. Her in and out movement and her volume and her long strikes, that's a way of navigating that weakness. She hasn't addressed the weakness. She's navigated it. Her ability to defend takedowns, that's because she's dealing with girls who don't know how to correctly pressure. They can't cut off a cage. They can't draw to strike. And then, and then slip it to get in to transition the distance. They don't know how to do those things. All they know how to do is load up and swing or run face first. Now you're facing a girl who's not going to buy your feints. Now you're facing a girl who knows how to cut off a cage. Now you're facing a girl who knows how to pressure you. So those takedowns, those clinch attempts, and those tie-ups, they all become they all become big and wide and open because I know how to manipulate you, and you can't manipulate me with your footwork or your feints. So essentially. The striking was even, and then it came down to the fact that Joanna is a one-dimensional fighter. She doesn't take people down. She doesn't grapple. Valentina does. So Valentina just got some takedowns, used takedown attempts to wear on her, to lean on her, to land some shots, to get into the position she wants to get in, to score points, and to win the, and to win the fight. She could have won a striking exchange. It would have been a little bit more difficult, but those takedowns and the threat of the takedowns, essentially forced Joanna to holster her guns and not throw the volume or throw the range of strikes she wanted to dry, she wanted to throw. When she attacked the body, she was successful. When she threw the front snap kick, she was successful, but she was fearful of being countered off the kicks. She was fearful of Val transitioning, bridging the gap, getting her hands on her and pinning her down or just controlling her. So she didn't she couldn't open up the way she usually opens up because her striking didn't give her the buffer that she's she's usually she's used to actually having when she fights. So essentially, once the striking and the athleticism was comparable, her ability to dictate rate, pace, and range 
disappeared. And once she couldn't dictate the fight and determine where it's going to happen and how it was going to happen, she had no, she had no game. She had no plan B because she can't wrestle you. She can't grapple you. All she can do is strike. And this person essentially took took away all your best tools and all your best weapons. So talking about weapons there, you um, said quite a bit about Valentina. I wrote a piece about her yesterday that will be going up on ratings probably tomorrow where I question her ability to be a dominant champ. I think she does have the ability to be a dominant champ. I have another question there for you too after this. But how how do you see the rest of the division stacking up, up against her in the future? And what, I mean, I'm assuming Jessica I is the number one contender. But where do you go next for her in that in that group? Um, I I don't know if Jessica I is going to get it. She won the fight. It wasn't particularly exciting. Even if Chukagian won, won the fight, I don't know that she's done anything this particular exciting. If Liz Carmouche wins her next fight, I think Carmouche might actually have the heads up because Carmouche has beaten a better caliber of opponent than Jessica I has. So Carmouche might actually have a leg up, but there's not any real any real sexy fights as far as like this person's a name or this person draws a bunch of eyes. Um, I guess Nico Montano is still there because she was the former champion. They have some sort of history and controversy. So there's a fight that could be made, but um, a lot of these fights aren't going to draw a lot of interest. I think there's such a gap. The, the biggest problem with fighting Valentina is this. Most girls don't have her striking pedigree. Most girls don't have her striking technique. A lot of them don't have the athleticism and a lot of them don't have corners or trainers with the resume deep enough to prepare them for a fighter with her skill set and her ability to execute. Nico Montano does. Arlene Sanchez struck at a world-class level. She competed. She's coached. She can, she can come up with a strategy that would allow her to navigate some of those strikes and navigate a lot of what Valentina does. Because as good as Valentina is, the fact is she's not terribly accurate. She's still not a knockout puncher. And she's one-dimensional in how she fights. She's only going to fight you one way. She doesn't have a lot of variation in how she fights. It's just a matter of having enough skills to expose the limitations in her game. Joanna is a girl who does not have those skill sets. So I, I think there's ways to be Valentina. But the way it looks like now, she's essentially going to GSP the division. It's not going to be exciting. It's not going to be dynamic. She's going to outwork people. She's going to take people down. She's going to control them in clinches. She's going to counter them. And she's going to essentially win decisions. She's going to do the same thing she did at Bantamweight because that's all she knows how to do. The only difference is at this weight class, her power is a little bit more. Her, she's not physically outside, so she can muscle girls. And a lot of those takedowns she couldn't get at Bantamweight, she can get here. A lot of those strikes that wouldn't stun anybody at Bantamweight, they put girls on their heels here. So essentially her physical gifts are going to allow uh, enhance her technical skills to the point She's gonna. She should be able to control and decision the majority of the the people in the weight class. I still believe Nico Montagna could give her some fits. I believe Jessica I could have some moments, just because she's coming down from weight as well, so she wouldn't be bullied either. But the technical, the technical aspect is where she's so far ahead of people, especially in the counter game, and 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 striking isn't very good in women's mixed martial arts as a whole. So, I expect a long reign. I'm like you. I expect a, a pretty long reign. Now, there's a question that I have in there that I posed to some people online on Twitter that didn't go answered. But Nico, uh, not Nico Montagna, excuse me. Valentina Shevchenko is the women's flyweight champion. Demetrius Johnson was the men's flyweight champion. 
they both are sitting on top of divisions that aren't very deep. We saw what the response was to DJ as he continued to defeat contender after contender after contender. People almost got angry at him for doing so and put him in a position where he couldn't get pushed by the UFC at all. Are we looking at a situation where Valentina has the, has the same response or will she have some protection because she's a, an, an attractive white woman? I think that's part of it. I think, I mean, I would go, I think that's a big part of it. I think she, I think, like I mentioned before, she plays into the, the romantic aspect of the fighting a little bit more than, than Demetrius Johnson does. I mean, like when Amanda Nunes couldn't fight, she called her a coward. And said she was afraid of her. When Nico Montagna couldn't fight, she's a coward. She's afraid of me. And she's she's kind of played the game a little bit more. Like Demetrius Johnson always said, you know, I don't care who I fight. It's no big deal. It's another day at the office. Valentina Shevchenko is now playing the game to the point where she's like, I'm calling this person out. They're all scared of me. I'll take on anybody. She's saying the things that the fans want to hear. And I think that plays a part in it. But I can never deny the fact that she's going to get certain opportunities because she fits the demographic into a large segment of the males who watch the show, watch MMA. They consider her to be very attractive, even though she would never give them the time of day. They find her very attractive. And so she has an appeal that's going to work in her favor. Demetrius Johnson, I don't know if a lot of women find him attractive. I never heard female mixed martial arts fans talk about him. So he, he didn't have a pool with the opposite sex. And of course, Valentina has pool with the opposite sex and she has the pool of she's a woman who's in, in a male-dominated sport, which means there's another layer of protection she gets from how she acts and what kind of support she gets because of that aspect of it. Same thing that happened with Ronda Rousey. Ronda got away with a lot of stuff because she was a woman in a male-dominated sport. She got to say things that if a man said, he would have been crushed. In fact, she said things that when a man said it, he got crushed. So I think you make a legitimate statement, and I, I really think she's, she's not going to catch as much flack. She, she's really not. And the one and the one technical point that's going to help her not catch flack is when she fought Joanna, Joanna had moments. Joanna came on late. When Mighty Mouse was fighting these people, he was just destroying them. I mean, he knocked out Benavidez really bad. He was just crushing people. Valentina is not that kind of fighter. Even if she's controlling fights, you're always going to have the feel that someone could make an adjustment and make her pay. Or someone could overwhelm her at a certain point if they would just do one or two things different. She's not a blow you out type fighter. Even when she fought that girl who she just dominated, she couldn't put her away with strikes. She didn't have a highlight reel knockout. She eventually submitted her. So all her fights are never going to look like she's so far ahead of somebody. Those people are going to look like they have an opportunity to beat her. When Demetrius fought people, it didn't look like they were in the same caliber of a fighting class. It looked like he was a UFC fighter and they were a LFA fighter. That's how far the gap was between them. Given her style, it's never going to seem that wide. All her fights are like decision wins. So you're never going to see that dominant. So people are always going to feel like her opponents have a better chance at beating her than Demetrius Johnson's had a chance of beating him. Some great analysis there, man. I definitely appreciate you breaking it down that way. Um, what else stood out from you at UFC 231? Um, the Jessica I fight was important because it, in theory, it was supposed to schedule the next, um, the next contender for the belt. It was only interesting that I, I talked to some people in her camp and I just gave them my opinion on Chukagan and the scouting report, basically. Like, it was three pages or whatever. And 
Um, it's eye-opening because Jessica I did not fight the cleanest fight, but Chukagan could not make any sort of adjustment in what she did in the way she had to fight. She just had to make one or two adjustments, and she just could not make it. It's like she basically has fought the same way for the entirety of her career in the UFC, and I, I think the book's out on her, so unless she starts making some changes, I really feel like she can come down the vision. And as good as Jessica I has been, You're breaking up her, a little bit. I'm sorry. On as good as Jessica has been on her end, she has she hasn't been dominant. So I don't know how long she can hold her position. I know she wants to wait for a title fight, but how long can she wait for a title fight before she has to fight again just to make money? Is she will, willing to put wait six months, twelve months, eighteen months? I don't know. So both of these fighters could move down the uh, rankings fairly quickly, very quickly if they don't play their cards right. And uh, the only other thing that really shocked me was Adi Gadelia. Um, that was a bad loss. I know Ansaroff's on a run, but Kadelia came in with a wrong game plan. She was chasing the takedown. It was like when she fought Joanna. She was forcing those takedowns. She was chasing the takedown. By half of the first round, she was dead. She didn't have breaking up, breaking up again. She didn't have anything left. She was lunging. She was tired. She Her defense fell apart. And she basically got outworked by Ansaroff, who only outworks you when she's not scared off by your power. She didn't have a plan B, and it was a really bad showing for her in a time when she can't afford a really bad showing. Uh, this is a huge setback for her, and unless she makes some serious changes, I don't know what, what she does going forward. That was a really bad showing, and um, I just expected better from her. As a veteran of mixed martial arts and a, and a top three fighter, I really expect, expected a better performance from her, and she just did not pull the trigger. Her game plan was bad, but as a veteran, she should have ha- been able to make an adjustment, and no point in that fight was she able to make that was the worst I've ever seen her fight in years. Good. Uh, wow. Who said the worst you've ever seen her fight in years, huh? She she was chasing the takedown, and she I think she got one or two of them. And I said that, and I'm like, you can't chase the takedown. You've already got gas problems as far as her stamina. That's Everybody knows that. So she's chasing these takedowns, and then she, she couldn't secure them. And then when she got it, she couldn't do any damage. So, yes, yeah, she might have won the first round, but she wasted all the energy. She didn't have any plan. She, she didn't counter to the body. She wasn't faking. She wasn't throwing high and coming low. And Ansaroff's length was giving her all sorts of problems. And she doesn't kick. So she basically conceded a kicking range. And then she was headhunting, which meant she just walked into shots left and right. When a taller, you're fighting a taller fighter and you won't kick, you have to attack the body. You have to faint. You have to have a busy jab so you can get to them and you can manipulate them and navigate the distance. All she did was come right in with the right hand. And she just got jabbed and countered and kicked and, and beat senseless. She had nothing for her on the feet. And she was just diving for takedowns and she was never going to. It was just a bad, it was an unprofessional performance. And I'm a Claudia fan, but that was a really unprofessional performance. And that was a very important fight for her. And she fought like, if I take her down, she will have no answer for me. Like, I'll take her down, and I'll just dominate her. And once again, it's a fighter assuming I'm so much better in, somebody, in a spot that, that I can dominate. And when she took her down, she didn't dominate. And when she got back up, she had no answers. And her team had no answers. And that's just not something you should be doing at this level, given the, given the caliber of fighter she is. She should have never come out in that first round fighting the way she did. And it cost her. She, basically, when she halfway through the first round, the fight was lost. That was it. Halfway through the first round, the fight was lost. She couldn't do anything. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely what I, I agree to there because I was not pleased with how she fought um, in that fight as well, too. I 
want to look forward to this weekend's fight cards because we have two uh, events, one Bellator and one UFC card. But on both of them, um, I think there's only one fight each I really want to talk about on both. On the UFC on Fox 31, obviously I want to talk about Kevin Lee versus Al Quinta, And then at Bellator 212, we have Brett Primus finally defending his chan- uh, title against Michael Chandler. Which fight do you want to talk about first? you Carlin? I'm shocked. Say that again? I said, you're not talking about your girl, McFarlane? I'm shocked. Wait, that's, today? that's this weekend, too? I think it is. Isn't it this weekend? They showed the, the weigh-ins. Wait, hold on. That can't be this weekend, too. Hold on. I want to say she's on the same card. I thought that... No, but look... It is. It's the next day. That's Saturday. Wow, Bellator, mm-hmm. so Bellator has a card on Friday and Saturday... And UFC has a card on Saturday. Yeah, Bellator has been. Oh, I was man, shocked. You gotta... I was like, you're a big, you're a big uh, Elite Day fan, so I was like, "How are you not mentioning her?" <laughs> man, that's what that they got. Uh, they got her versus Val- uh, Valerie Letourneau. They have Leoto Machida and, and Rafael Calvalo. Neiman Gracie versus Ed Ruth. Man. So looking at okay, let me. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you a tough question. You got three cars this weekend. Which one stands out to you the most? I might say the Bellator card just because I, I'm I'm really interested. I think Elimelay's number two, num, number two flyweight in the world. I'm kind of interested to see how she performs because I think she's UFC caliber. I, I think she'd be title contender right now in the UFC, if not a possible champion. So I'd probably be interested in seeing how that fight goes, even more than the Primus and Chandler fight. I've lost my interest for it because it's been so on and off and so much drama. They talk about everything except for the fight. It's kind of made it less appealing to me. And I don't know how good Primus is anyways. And I'm not the biggest Chandler fan either. So it'd be McFarland first and then Kevin Lee, Iaquinta second. And nothing from the UFC card? Uh, yeah, the Iaquinta Lee fight. That, that'd be it. That, that'd be the fight I'd, I'd really be invested in. Talk to me. Tell me about why. Because it's... Uh, Lee's on the street. Lee's essentially one step away from being an elite fighter. Beating Edson Barboza didn't do it for me. And all the other guys he's beaten are talented, but they're somewhat limited. And But if he beats Iaquinta and gets his win back, he's essentially going to take that step into being a legitimate title contender. So it's the stakes that makes the fight very important to me. And then the fact that Iaquinta has been such an outspoken guy against the UFC and their pay scale and how they treat fighters... And it's like, it's almost like they're trying to punish him, but this could backfire on them because they're thinking Lee's going to walk through him because there's no reason you give a guy like him this kind of fight unless you're just hoping that he's going to lose and Lee's going to take that next step. So the whole dynamics and the history of it and the stance he's taken on fighter pay and fighter rights kind of adds an extra amount of weight to this fight. Technically, it's pretty straightforward, but the stakes of this fight are very very high. And if Iaquinta wins, you know he's going to keep talking about the UFC pay scale and how they don't treat people right and how he doesn't like how they do business. And if Lee wins, he's essentially the next contender. I think they'd try and match him up against Khabib. I think he'd leapfrog Tony, to be honest. I think they'd really put him past Tony. Do you think Kevin Lee has the answer for Khabib Namagamadoff? I think with his athleticism, the, the way he, the, his, uh, his athleticism and his size, I think he would cause Khabib a lot of problems. Khabib hasn't really 
wrestled with a guy who has comparable explosiveness or physical strength. And I, Kevin Lee could probably wrestle with 170 guys. He's that strong. He's that explosive. Tony Ferguson has a pace and a physicality, but I don't believe Tony Ferguson has that horsepower, that physical strength. And I think that levels the playing field between him and uh, Nurmagomedov. The only difference is Kevin Lee is very chinny. You can get to him physically. I don't think he takes the best shot. And mentally, I don't think he takes the best shot. But he's gotten much better skill-wise, and he still has that ace in the hole of his top-end grappling and scrambling ability. So I I really think that Kevin Lee could cause – Khabib a lot of problems in striking exchanges and in all wrestling or grappling exchanges. He just doesn't have the durability to make any mistakes. And unfortunately, Kevin Lee is a fighter who is prone to making at least one or two big mistakes in a fight. I think Khabib could capitalize it on, capitalize it on, capitalize on it in a way that other guys can. But I feel that skill-wise and, and as far as the attributes, Kevin Lee is probably one of the toughest matchups Khabib would have in the in the division. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued about that fight too, because he's been talking a lot. Um, he being Kevin Lee. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that fight would really go. Yeah. I mean, and if Kevin beats Al Quinta, even though Quinta lost to Khabib, he went five rounds with them. And that was like on what, two, three days notice. So beating I Quinta will have, will have some weight to it. Because this is a guy who just who fought the champion and went five rounds with him. Wasn't close to being submitted, wasn't close to being finished. If Kevin Lee can put a stamp on this fight, how do you not have him leapfrog Tony, who beat, you know, Anthony Pettis, who had only only win at that weight class had been against Michael Kaseya, who's not really an elite lightweight himself. I think that puts Kevin in the position to fight for the belt, or if Khabib holds off, fight for an interim cha- another interim championship. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm interested in seeing uh, if they can make that happen because I think that Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee is a, is an intriguing prospect in that division there. Um, I, you know, another fight I'm really interested in this weekend is the Ed Ruth and Neiman Gracie fight because Ed Ruth is someone that I'm watching. He's someone that I'm paying close attention to because the way he's being brought up, just he's being brought up the right way. I think this is his this is his seventh professional fight already, and let me see how many years. He's been a pro for two years. He debuted in November of 2016, and this is already his seventh professional fight. Um, what are your thoughts about this fight, there, man? And, and how interesting is it? Neiman Gracie as well, too. You know, he's a pretty big prospect. This is in the welterweight uh, Grand Prix tournament that they're doing. Neiman and Gracie started fighting back in 2013. So, what are your thoughts about this, and how do you see this uh, going? Um, those are really. It's like Bellator all of a sudden decided we don't care about our prospects. Like, if your name is in Michael Venom page, you're getting thrown to the wolves. <laughs> They're just going to see what you have, period. It's one thing I like about Bellator. It's one thing I don't like about them because it's really hard to build a star or build a, develop a prospect when you're just putting them in these 50-50 fights. And even though Ruth has re- really shown a lot and he's got that wrestling background, that athleticism, the fact of the matter is he's far from a finished fighter. And in a lot of, in a lot of ways... Gracie's overall grappling game and the experience he has is going to be the biggest challenge he's had to face. I don't know that Gracie's faced somebody with Roost kind of athleticism and, and physicality, so there's clear avenues for both people to win. I'm going to probably say Ruth can win it. I'm, I'm going to think he's going to go with the all sprawl and brawl, and just defend, defend on the feet, 
um, wear him out in clinches and just use his athleticism t- to take advantage of him in the striking exchange, striking exchanges in the middle of the cage. At least that's what I would do with him because um, Ruth is very explosive. I, I don't know that he's got the seasoning of the striking, but Neiman Gracie isn't anywhere near a world-class or national-class or even state-level striker. So the athleticism, the gap in athleticism should be enough if he keeps it pretty beaty potatoes and just picks his shots and just uses his athleticism, his movement, and his wrestling to control the pace and control where the fight happens. If it gets into an extended period where it goes further on and it's kind of a grinding fight, then we have another we have another discussion. Gracie might be able to catch him, but if he can keep it mobile, kind of free free movement, I think he picks him apart. And, uh, I won't say he stops them because that would require him to take chances. It would put him in a bad spot, but he could win a clear decision. Yeah, it, um, I'm, I'm hoping. Do you, I mean, do you think Ruth would do that, or do you think he's really going to try and? try him on the ground you think he's going to challenge him and just say hey I I can do this too the thing is I think I don't know if you've been watching uh, Ed Ruth you know he's been competing in in jiu-jitsu tournaments so he kind of I think he has a I think he has a a solid respect for jiu-jitsu he was running through guys when he did um, I think it was the, the New York Open last year he was running 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 through guys until he got to the last dude who let him take him down and then armbarred him from guard so i think he has a very thorough understanding and respect for jujitsu but this is mma and i think he may try it out i think he may test it out get some takedowns and see if he can get to the ground and pound and stay safe We've seen that before from other fighters, other other wrestlers who were able to do that type of um, that 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 game plan. So we may be we we may be in for a really interesting fight here on, on Saturday. Do you think he does a Demetrius Johnson kind of tenderizes him on the feet first and, and then engages in the grappling, or does he come right out and say, "Hey, I'm gonna put I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge myself because I I know it can strike on the ground." Because even Demetrius Johnson, who's one of the better grapplers. W- wouldn't just engage in a grappling exchange with somebody until he set it up the way he wanted. Like when he fought w- Wilson Hayes, he beat the crap out of him first and then grappled him. He didn't just come out shooting on him. I don't think he's going to, I don't think he has the, uh, the ability to, to do all that. Hmm. So uh, is there anything else from any one of these three cars that, that stand out to you, man? We got a lot of action going on this weekend. Uh, well, I mean, I know King Mo's fighting. I'm always interested in seeing him. I'm interested to see what Leota has left because, you know, he he wasn't really in the best shape leaving the UFC. Like, he'd been back and forth. But it'd be interesting to see how he, he shows out in Bellator because it seems like recently guys have really been performing well. And the division isn't a really tough division he's in as far as, like, the depth of talent. But mostly I want to see McFarlane. I think McFarlane's at worst the second best flyweight in the world. I'm interested to see how she does against Letourneau. Letourneau is very seasoned. Letourneau is fighting in the correct division for once in her life. And I'm interested to see if McFarlane's physicality, her balance of skills, and her athleticism is enough to overcome the savvy and the veteran the veteran approach and the physicality of, of Letourneau. Letourneau has been a top-rate, highly-ranked fighter for a few years now, coming in with a USB record in her back pocket. And it should probably be the best and most experienced person that McFarland faced. I want to see how McFarland handles somebody who's seen everything and been in every level of life possible. 
every type of fight. Breaking up. I'm interested to see how she handles a tough, gritty, experienced fighter. A lot of the girls she beat are talented, but they're very inexperienced. And we all know Valerie Letourneau is one of the most experienced fighters in the world at the world-class level. Yeah, that's definitely true. I, you know, I'm interested in seeing what she's what she's going to do as well. So with that in mind, man, um, let everybody know what you're working on this weekend and where they can find our content. Um, you can always go to MMA ratings. Raphael's been uh, doing a, a lot. You've been doing a lot of really good articles. Like I try to retweet them when I can or start discussions with them, but you've been doing a lot of good articles and taking a lot of unpopular positions on the, on the subjects. But I appreciate that because I get tired of people just parroting each other and like, oh, this is great for the UFC. Like, come on, man, have an individual thought. And you don't care. You clear, clearly give no fucks. So I appreciate it. It's very entertaining and it's good work. Yeah, uh, thank, me, um, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, me, uh, hopefully I'll have my laptop fixed by the end of this month and I'll get back to writing some more. But I'm just on Twitter talking fights, talking business aspect of it, talking technical aspect, arguing with people and explaining what I saw in different fights and how to – I have this new thing where I ask people – what fighter you want me to tell you how to beat them? I'll break it down for you as extensively as you need to, just so you know to, what, what to look for when when you're discussing that fighter. So I've just been talking MMA on on Twitter, but hopefully the next month I'll get back to writing a lot more. True. All right. So um, let us let everybody know where to find our content too, man. I forgot about that. Yeah. Once again, you can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Player FM, and SoundCloud. And uh, like I said, we appreciate all the support, and we're going to continue to do our best to give you a, a genuine look at mixed martial arts. A lot of people are kind of connected to other people. We're just doing our own thing. So we're saying what we think, and we're saying it the way we want, because we want you to have another outlet for the news, breakdowns, and assessments of what's going on in mixed martial arts. And we're, we're not trying to be like anybody else. We're just being ourselves, and we're, do, we're doing what we love, and hopefully you love it too true man as always man so thank you for coming back for another edition of the show programming note um i am traveling on vacation starting sunday so and i will not be back until january 1st so wow. we got no man like a four little that's like a four little word to you vacation, vacation. To somebody over that. Too. um i'm still gonna be i'm not doing any more me he said you don't talk to me like that man you don't say that word to me so I, I'm, I'm going to be doing my damn thing. So with that in mind, this is our last show, 2018. We will be back at the start of 2019, that first Thursday, to bring our shows back out. But we, um, yeah, man, it's been a great 2018. And we'll be back to see you all, see you all in 2019. Yes, we will. Hey, man, you stay safe out there and make sure you stay in touch so I know, know you're good. I will, man. I will be um, doing my damn thing, but I'm looking forward to it. I, I, I need the time off. All right, man. You take it easy. Thanks, man. Have a great day, and we'll see. We we'll see everybody in 2019, everyone.